This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brett. Today, we dive into the field of education in emergencies, highlighting its entanglements with colonialism, empire, and racial capitalism. My guest is Jess Adi. So when I say that education in emergencies is deeply entangled and connected to colonialism, it's really to challenge this idea that what we see and and maybe the kind of narratives around aid of, of being inherently good. And we see when we examine these histories that actually many of the organisations that today um, deliver education in emergencies programming have this history you know, deeply embedded in the kind of colonial project. Jess Adi is a researcher at the University of Bristol and has worked in various capacities in the field of education in emergencies. Her new article is entitled Retelling Education in Emergencies Through the Black Radical Tradition on Racial Capitalism, Critical Race Theory, and Fugitivity, which was published in Globalization, Societies, and Education. Jess Adi, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. Happy to be here. So congratulations on the article. I want to just jump right into kind of a big question for listeners who might not know too much about the field of education and emergencies. How would you describe the field of education and emergencies? Like, who are the actors involved? What are the big questions that scholars are asking in this field? Yeah, that's a great question. So education and emergencies, often referred to as EIE, is a field that addresses the educational needs of children, youth, adults affected by crisis and by the term crisis this can be applied very broadly such as conflicts natural disasters pandemics and the aim is to ensure that all individuals in such situations have access to safe quality and relevant education in terms of who's involved we'll see a wide range of stakeholders governments non-governmental organizations so like ngos international non-governmental organizations local communities academia children and families. And I think in terms of the scholars, people who are involved in this from an academic perspective, they're often asking big questions related to the quality of the education interventions, um, the intersections of humanitarianism, aid, trade and other socio-political factors. There's a lot of literature around the impact of crisis on education systems, the effectiveness of different interventions, the role of education in promoting peace and resilience. You can see how it's a massive field, right? I mean, if you're talking about natural disasters and social disasters that might arise anywhere in the world and how education is connected to this, yeah, it's huge because then you can think of things like prevention. How do you, you know, how does the education system help prevent some of these disasters from even happening in the first place? What happens in the process of these disasters unfolding? What does education look like? How does it work? But then also sort of in the aftermath of some of these disasters and the connections to education, you can see how it really could become rather complex rather quickly. In the article, you level some critiques of the field itself of education and emergencies. And one of them is that you sort of say that there's this entanglement between education and emergencies and colonialism. How do you see that connection? Yes, you're right. I do level several critiques at the field. And yeah, it's entanglements with colonialism and and how it is connected to colonialism and histories of imperialism. I think where to begin with that? Well, 
you know, as you said, the range, diversity of emergencies that we see in the world today, you know, is ever expanding. And there is an expansion around what, you know, what is constitutes an emergency or humanitarian situation. For example, in the UK, we're seeing increasingly aid budgets are being used to fund domestic programming. So domestic programming refers to policies and programs implemented by government to support or address poverty and inequality within its own borders. I think by the end of 2023, we were seeing that five billion pounds had been removed from the UK budget to be earmarked for domestic programming, housing refugees. And I use this term really lightly because uh, in the UK, uh, many refugees and asylum seekers are, are you know, placed in, in, tight, in sites of detention. So when I say that education and emergencies is deeply entangled and connected to colonialism, it's really to challenge this idea that what we see and, and maybe the kind of narratives around aid of, of being inherently good. And in the paper, I talk a lot, you know, and I refer to the work of people like Rebecca Schwartz, um, Emily Bourne, who've done extensive archival studies on the interconnections between humanitarianism, internationalism and empire and the histories of the role that education itself played as a kind of tool of empire, as an arm of empire. And we see when we examine these histories that actually many of the organisations that today um, deliver education and emergencies programming have this history, you know, deeply embedded in the kind of colonial project. And as a field, I don't think that's really been addressed. We see and we see it continue today in the way that programmes are designed, the way that the, the field more broadly is conceptualised and the actors and the stakeholders who are given attention and a lot of the narratives that come out we can see maybe a clear continuum from, you know, histories of colonialism and empire. Could you give an example of where you see, say, the, the arm of empire, as you called it, where you see that reaching into the present and into some of the actual, you know, the design of a program that might be considered part of education and emergencies? Well, I would say that it is incredibly present and visible in the field to the extent that actually, um, I think it must have been October 2020, the Interagency Network for Education and Emergencies, so INEE, which is a renowned member network that is, you know, has established itself as an authoritative, authoritative body in the field of EIE over the past two decades. They issued a groundbreaking anti-racism racial equity statement where they clearly highlight that and explicitly acknowledge that education and emergencies has, as a sector uh, has played a role in perpetuating what they describe as white supremacy culture and institutional racism through the ways that organizations are structured, through the actions. I think that revelation was very significant because there has been so such limited scholarly attention to this within the field. Uh, and I say that both in academia and from my background as a practitioner, um, you know, until 2020, the, the conversation around education and education being anything but inherently good was never really openly explored. And that's evident when you, you know, you look online and look for, you know, advocacy, policy formulations, research, etc. Program development, there's very little around actually acknowledging these these histories and also um, how they you know resonate and still hold truth in the present so you're sort of saying that this INEE statement in 2020 was a watershed moment it sort of began to change the way or change the conversations that were happening in the field I wouldn't say it was I mean I think it was a watershed moment for the organization it maybe created a, a space a more visible conversation that maybe many practitioners had been putting forward and pushing behind the scenes for many many years it's also I think it's really telling that um, a sector 
that looks, you know, that's kind of primarily goal is to support people who've been most impacted by structural dispossession, for example, had never really grappled with, you know, education inequalities studies or the fields, you know, that looked at kind of racial inequity, that looked at other forms of marginalization like that. I would say that's still not really prevalent in the field, although, of course, we're seeing many more people coming through and sharing kind of critique. So it's definitely, I think, yeah, definitely since 2020, you know, there are more people coming forward and talking and bringing really interesting perspectives to the to the work whether that connection is making the leap into the actual day-to-day operations outside of academia i'm not so sure i'd love to learn more about that because from my perspective from someone who reads a lot of journal articles and books in the field of education i've definitely seen more and more articles sort of in this light and it's you know it is and i never actually put the INEE statement as sort of the turning point but you know maybe it was part of this turning point where we're seeing new conversations happening in the field that are very welcomed, in my opinion. But I'd love, you know, for someone like yourself who has worked in the field and maybe still has a foot in the practical space, is it translating? Is that sort of conversation that's happening, let's say, on paper, actually having an impact on the ground, so to speak, to use that sort of silly dichotomy? The pessimist in me would say no. I think, you know, we've got to also think about the context in which that statement was made by INE. And that was, you know, in 2020. This was after the murder of George Floyd. This was when there was a wave of, I think, you know, of discourse around racial inequity in particular. And that led and, you know, that translate that impacted every single sector and it impacted the humanitarian aid sector of which education emergencies is a subset. And, you know, for years and years and years, you know, Kwame Nkrumah talks about in 1965 how aid is a colonial project. People have been having these conversations for decades. In 2020, there was, you know, an opening or a reassertion and attention given to this. We saw within the field multiple organizations like INEE come out with their own statements. We saw organizations like Save the Children, which is a huge education and emergency mandate, come out and, and declare its, you know, its um, recognition that it had been operating in in a white supremacy way or the recognition of huge inequities in the way that aid was delivered. But when we look now in 2020-24, I don't think there has been a significant shift in the way that educational aid is delivered in the conversations around it. I don't think there's been a significant, you know, there's a lot of talk within the humanitarian field around localization and this idea that you know, local partners, local organizations should have a much more prominent role in decision making, how money should be spent, etc. Whether that has translated into the field of EIE, I, I don't think so. And I think also the consistent narrative around donor funding and this reliance on a structure that doesn't really challenge the wider structures that result in people being forcibly displaced living in camps and um and, and being dependent on aid and if we want to really you know we, we see this playing out in real time right now you know the last couple of months funding has been withdrawn from UNRWA which is you know the biggest provider of um formal education in the in the Gaza Strip and we see you know donors retracting from funding that to me highlights how the system is you know deeply political and that in fact, if we want to talk about, yeah, EIE and colonialism, this is, for me, a, a, just another example of showing that when we give aid, it's not necessarily, when I say we, when, when governments give aid, it's not necessarily from a place of benevolent. There is always a geopolitical interest there. And just as quickly as it can be given, it can be retracted. And I think many people who've worked as practitioners 
in the field will tell you, you know, time and time again, their funding has been cut um, without any conversation with the organization, with, with the people who, you know, the funding was supposed to serve. We're, we're used to that in the kind of practitioner world. And it's something that's happened quite recently, in, actually in 2023, specifically with education and emergencies funding um, for research. And, um, my co- you know, a couple of my colleagues wrote about um, this, yeah, this issue. So, yes, just to say we're witnessing the connections and the entanglements. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it just shows the geopolitical nature of aid itself and how it can't be benevolent necessarily or only. And that the the changing whims of geopolitics because of new leaders, because of new wars, because of new conflicts, you know, whatever it is, it's way beyond any individual program can have, you know, dramatic effects on that program. That program, like you said, could be shut down, even though it could show all the accountability mechanisms of like effectiveness and efficiency and everything like that. But because of the geopolitics, it might get shuttered. I guess another entanglement that you bring up in the article, and perhaps is one of these wider structures that you're talking about, is capitalism, and in particular, racial capitalism. Can you talk about how the field of education and emergencies entangled with capitalism in a similar way that it's entangled with these geopolitics. Yeah, sure. So I guess maybe it'd be helpful just to share a little bit of my understanding when I'm talking about racial capitalism. So to me, and this is very much informed by people such as C.L.R. Robinson, that racial capitalism is a concept that describes the intersection between capitalism and racism, emphasizing how racial hierarchies and inequalities are kind of intertwined with economic systems. And so when, you know, historically racial capitalism has been used to describe kind of economic systems that have been built upon, I don't know, the exploitation of enslaved labor, colonialism, and other forms of racialized oppression. When we talk about it in the sense of education emergencies, we would say, well, I would argue that there is a deep connection because education and emergencies is part of the humanitarian aid architecture, which very much comes out, you know, somebody who's taking a, looking at this through a racial capitalist lens would say, well, this comes out of a history of colonization and exploitation and expropriation. So, you know, the roots are deep. And we know that in capitalist economies, education is often treated as a commodity and access to quality education is, is unevenly distributed based on social economic status. And when we look at that in the context of EIE, we see this manifest in multiple ways, whether it's the unequal distribution of resources and opportunity, depending on where the crisis is. I drew my my thesis, I did a lot of research with education emergency practitioners and from multiple organisations, and they all shared their perspectives and insights around this issue and, and highlighted that, you know, the type of programming that certain countries may get is very different depending on, you know, what the perception is of what right word to say there is like, yeah, depending on, yeah, I guess kind of colonial ideologies around what is acceptable or not. You know, I see that deeply connected to the fact that within education emergencies, there is a huge, huge, huge underfunding of post-primary education. And when we look into the kind of, you know, interviews that I had with with practitioners, they all put this down to this idea that this, you know, some people don't need to have higher um, further education beyond primary or that they're not capable. 
And when we trace that, particularly to the work that Rebecca Schwartz has done around colonial histories of education, it's very much connected to this idea of educatability. And when we look at, you know, these histories of education, colonization, how there was, you know, a certain type of education that was offered to certain populations, we see this continuum. And, and even in the way that programs are, you know, and I'm talking from a practitioner perspective, but I think it's also relevant for research, the ways that programs are, are implemented, thinking specifically of research examples, you know, the way research grants are maybe designed, the, the way that people are paid and, and reimbursed and remunerated for their participation patient in programs, you'll see a, a radical difference between a research ad, uh, advisor or consultant who sits in the global north compared to the, the teacher in the classroom who, who may be tasked with gathering data in education emergency programming. We see this in the way that people are paid. You know, so again, a teacher will be paid an incentive. This is something that's not challenged in many, many contexts and there'll be a set incentive. Um, meanwhile, if you work for a UN agency or a you know international non-governmental organisation, you'll be getting you know ten, a hundred times more than that person who sat in the hot tent without air conditioning teaching a hundred children. So it's very visible. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, Raywin Connell's Southern Theory, her book, and where she details the extraction of labour and of data from the global south into the global north, where it's sort of theorised and analysed, and all the quote-unquote intellectual work happens. And she shows how that happened over time, you know, from when Darwin was sailing around the islands doing his work to today, it sounds like what you're saying. A lot of these structures and processes haven't changed. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think they have changed or they haven't changed significantly. And we're seeing maybe we're at a time where we're seeing superficial reform. So we are seeing people or we are seeing organizations and we are seeing scholarship that is more attentive to these power dynamics or gives lip service to these power dynamics. We are seeing examples of programming that is, you know, in partnership with organizations and maybe more distribution of funding towards these organizations. We may even see more participatory research, but still I don't think there's a significant shift. And I say this because actually just an example, uh, a couple of years ago, um, I was invited to a panel discussion and I invited a colleague that I'd worked with in South Sudan many years ago. He is a teacher in a refugee camp and um, I invited him to participate as well because we were writing a paper together. And he said to me, this was the first time he'd been invited to a panel and the panel was on, um, I think it was on, yeah, like kind of decolonial thinking in research. For me, it was a real shame that this is the first time that somebody who actually has the lived experience and who the lived experience of being forcibly displaced who is a scholar in a camp doing this work and how absent people like him are from these types of forums. The other thing as well is like the way we set these conversations often is even if you were to invite people, they're not accessible. So, you know, for for him, you know, he had to buy data to participate in this in this conference. It was then, you know, it wasn't he wasn't reimbursed for his time. And so there's all these kind of assumptions made that even when, you know, people maybe want to be participatory and engage, the allocation of resources to really do that isn't there. Do you think this sector or the subsector will be able to change? Like, will the subsector sort of escape this history or overcome this history? I guess, you know, I guess that's the question is like, is this something we're going to be stuck with? Or are there things that can be done in the subsector to push for a different way of organizing, a different way of allocating resources, a different distribution of power? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I think there are a lot of people who are, you know, working within organizations and really 
trying to shift things within their organizations, the people who believe passionately about their work and want to see, uh, you know, a more accountable and transparent way of working and a more kind of equitable way of working. At the same time, I think there's many scholars at the moment, you know, contributing to this kind of growing critique around education emergency. So I think that's promising. My own perspective is, though, I actually think that it is very, very hard to change these structures. I think there's a lot of resistance within them. Um, but I am very much inspired by all the alternative spaces that are emerging in spite of this. And I think we've seen this just bloom over the past couple of years. People are, are very mobilized. You know, we're seeing, you know, lots of kind of intergenerational movements around lots of different issues. And the reality is people are uh, creating their own spaces because they've been kept out of certain institutions and structures for so long. That's one of the things I loved about your article is that you not only level these critiques about this field, but you actually show that there has been both historically and in the present alternatives, as you said, organizations, people, groups doing things differently that would be considered education and emergencies. Can you give us an example of something more recently? Like, you know, tell us about an alternative that really interests you. Oh, I think there's so many examples that I've had the privilege of seeing or that I've heard of through through conversations yeah as part of my phd thesis i did some research in south sudan in a camp called ajantok a place where i'd worked many many years ago where people are forcibly displaced from the nuba mountains and what was and still is incredible in that space is the stories that people have of decades of resistance and building educational spaces um despite horrific and continuous structural violence in their home country. So, for example, um, in parts of the territory, particularly in the 90s and 2000s, you know, there was no international aid going to South Kordofan. And, you know, people wanted their children to be educated. So they looked within their own communities. And there were many, many examples of, of people setting up schools themselves. There were many examples of people sending children actually to different camps as a way to get educated outside of the country. But there was lots of organizing as well. And teachers came from different parts of Africa to teach in the Nuba Mountains. And I think that's just a really, uh, again, some of the histories that we don't see when we have this overarching narrative of INGO-led education or whatever the humanitarian intervention is. And so, yeah, I think that one example. I guess to follow up, you know, like a, on, I guess on a more theoretical question, you know, based on that example, do you think it's possible for the INGO, the International Non-Governmental Organization, led efforts in education and emergencies to coexist with alternatives that you see? Or are they sort of, you know, if the INGO work is there, do they sort of displace some of these alternatives? Like, how do you see the relationship between, you know, in a more theoretical way, rather than in any specific example? I Can they coexist? I think this issue of displacing is something that I've witnessed, I've seen, where often an organization will come along and when they come to a place where there is nearly always some type of community response happening in place. And I think often happens is that instead of honoring and upholding that community response it becomes submerged within their own structure there's lots of examples of people you know in places where there have been um, actions on the ground and I think it's really really telling that if you go on most INGO websites uh, there is just their brand just their logo 
They may say we work with partners, but who are these partners? They definitely don't put the picture of the teachers or the parents who set up a school in a cave and have been running it for a number of years. They definitely don't put the pictures of, you know, people pooling their own resources and hiring teachers from another country to come in and teach their children. So I think until INGOs really humble themselves, I'm not really sure how. I think that as it happens, the two the community-based approach and the INGO approach, they are already coexisting, whether it can be done on a more mutual benefit, solidarity, reciprocity basis. Well, Jess Adi, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. I think your insights, both theoretically, but also on that practical level, are just such a welcome intervention into this space. So thanks again for joining. Thanks so much for having me. Jess Adi is a researcher at the University of Bristol. Her new article is Retelling Education in Emergencies Through the Black Radical Tradition. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Fatih Octus, Obafemi Angunle, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements, and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the Shakta Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.